rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Well, welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. I am excited to be on this Zoom cast, I guess we can call it today, <laughs> with Dr. Jerome Libba. Jerome, welcome back for the second time. I appreciate it. What a, what a gift. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How are you guys surviving down there in Atlanta? Uh, you know, I think the short answer I've been giving everybody is it's been a, an exercise in appreciating contrasts. I kind of feel like that person who's in the hot tub by the snow and then they get out and they get in the snow and then they jump back in the hot tub and then they get out and they get in the snow. Uh, and I'm not sure which one is the pleasurable experience, whether it's the snow or it's the hot tub, it's different for everybody. Um, but there's been, you know, it's been a lot of very, very uh, incredible highs over the last few weeks with serving patients and taking care of people and some very, very uh, significant lows in terms of the, the, the spaces that are happening around the world and, and how it's impacting people. So just digesting all of that, like I think a lot of folks are, and doing my best to practice what I preach and, and make every effort to maintain my own health. So Yeah, that's great. Well, for those of you who aren't familiar with Jerome, you can go back and listen to a previous episode of on the podcast, one of the series this past season, um, he was on, he told about his background and his story. And I don't want to spend a ton of time on that, Jerome, but can you just briefly tell people what you do in Atlanta and what your day-to-day practice and your background is? Yeah. Uh, the easiest answer that I tell folks is I'm kind of like a personal trainer for the brain. Um, most people know that they have a brain, but they don't know how to use it. So I teach them how to do that. Uh, from a clinical standpoint, I specialize in complex unresolved cases my history is, I'm a, my undergrad is in digital animation and film, and I used to do music full-time, so I was an artist and in the creative world. But I went to 21 specialists over nine years to get a diagnosis for my own neurological issues where I averaged over 100 independent migraines per year. Uh, and I still do, unfortunately. Uh, I've got a plumbing issue of my brain that creates some, some structural problems. And what ended up happening was became a doctor. I uh, got a doctorate in chiropractic and ended up getting board certifications and specialties in what's called functional neurology. So I'm now the only doctor in Atlanta that's board certified in functional neurology, which means that it's kind of like you go to a traditional neurologist and after you get that diagnosis, that neurologist takes you straight into treatment and they do the therapy with you. Um, so I'm not a neurologist. I'm a functional neurologist, but specializing in really complex cases, but through really practical means without drugs or surgery. So mm-hmm. Uh, fix people's brains and, and help them learn how to use them a little bit better. I have a good friend who is a doctor. She's a physiatrist. Is that similar to some of the things you do? It is. You know, I, I always joke with folks that um, when you do functional neurology, you end up having to kind of become, uh, if you're good at it, you become a, a, ma- a, a master of, a jack of all and a master of all. You kind of have to, you have to be a generalist, not a specialist. Um, so when you do this, it's similar to physical therapy, occupational therapy, physiatry, uh, traditional uh, alternative, traditional and alternative approaches. So you're going to put it all in a blender and try and take care of everybody from head to toe. Uh, but, you know, obviously still within scope. Um, but it's fun. You get to do basically what a lot of folks are familiar with uh, in advanced physical therapy, but more customized and more individualized and, and not necessarily a protocol basis based on diagnosis. You see somebody and you go, okay, you're wrestling with this particular thing. How do we customize it and fine tune it as if you're a similar instrument, but you're out of tune in a slightly 
specific or unique way. No different than a personal trainer would go, go in with somebody and go, you want to get stronger and you want to do strength-based exercises, but let's make sure that those strength-based exercises are specific to you, not just for the muscle you're trying to train. That's great. That's great. And, and one of the other reasons that I think we intersect, uh, and especially with listeners and some of my interest is you, you're also a fan of the Enneagram and you've written recently a book and it's a brain-based model to the Enneagram, which I love. And we're going to dive into some of that today because you approach it, I think, uh, very uniquely and differently than anyone that, that, that I've talked to and consulted with. Yeah, no, I would, I, I always, you know, it's funny when I was in school finishing my doctorate and I thought I've got too much stuff to study. And then somebody introduced me to the Enneagram and I went, no, apparently I do have more room. <laughs> it's been the last 10 years of my life going, why is there no hard science or research or neuroscience behind the Enneagram? It feels like there's really, really, you know, there's really great avenues to connect those dots. But, you know, sometimes when it doesn't exist, you do the crazy thing of trying to see what it looks like to invent it. So uh, that's where we're at with the brain-based Enneagram. So. That's great. Um, before we jump into the brain-based Enneagram, some of the, some of the unique... Um, views and practices you have on that I, I i you know we find ourselves in an interesting time it's 2020 depending on when you're listening to this but real time it's 2020 it's april middle of april we're in the middle of this worldwide uh quarantine and COVID 19 experiments that we're going through and um this is this you know i don't think any of us that are alive today have seen anything like this or experienced it And one of the things that that I have been observing about myself and others and those around me and just talking to different people is there's some interesting psychological things going on, um, good, bad, and different. Um, But specifically, what I wanted to talk with you about is is what's going on in our brains right now as we quarantine and social distance is what's being rewired. And the way that I say it, that the reason I say it that way. Jerome is because uh, I've talked to a few people and uh, it's an interesting phenomenon when you you're watching a show on Netflix or you're watching the news and you see a commercial or a movie you're watching and you see people in groups and you see people bending over talking and getting in people's faces. It looks so foreign and cringy um, and, and it makes you stop and thinking like, Oh, my brain and my psychology rewired that quickly to frame those uh, environments and those situations, which are, have been normal all my life, to become abnormal very quickly. So I'm just curious from your perspective, what is going on in our brains during this time? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Bob. I mean, it's complex, right? I mean, there's so many different parts to it. I think the simple answer that I would give you, or at least the, the phrase or the keyword that I would give that people can Google that summarizes all of this is what's known as a limbic attachment. It's mm. L-I-M-B-I-C. A limbic attachment and the idea of attachment theory and all of these other spaces are saying when my brain encounters something profoundly life-giving, it's going to remember everything it can about it so that it can reinform it or reproduce it. Uh, If it encounters something that is profoundly life-threatening, it's going to do everything that it can to remove it or to mitigate it in the future. I joke around with folks, they sometimes, I refer to them as a kind of an oasis 
in a, in a mirage situation, you know, uh, if you are in the desert and you encounter an oasis, you want to do everything that you can to remember where it is. Uh, a lot of times we can end up, it's a mirage and we're disenfranchised and we think we're close, but we're not. Uh, two examples that I give for that, that up until this point, uh, I think everybody uh, in different age groups had different connections with it, or three examples, is asking people, where were you when JFK was assassinated? Where were you when the Challenger blew up? Where were you when you found out that the towers had been hit in New York and 9-11 happened? You know, the interesting thing is everybody who's under 25 doesn't really have any connection with 9-11 because they weren't old enough. Um, but the reality is what we're experiencing in the space that we're, we're having right now is what we encounter every single day of our life. We just don't tend to encounter it in a global setting, which is we're having a limbic attachment. Our brain is going, I'm encountering something that feels profoundly life-threatening because for some of us it is and for some of us it isn't but for all of us it could be perceived as such so one of the other pieces it's helpful to mention from a bullet point is not only is it a limbic attachment either really pleasurable or really painful life-giving or life-threatening but it's also a conversation around perception and it's also a conversation around resiliency the reason i say that is the joke that I use with everybody is you can't tickle yourself. If you can, you've got a really significant medical diagnosis <laughs> that you can't even prevent yourself from startling yourself. But why I mention that is what we're talking about when you talk about a limbic attachment or how we engage with what feels really safe or really unsafe is anchored in this really strong neurological truth of how the brain works that we don't know the difference between perception and reality. Mm. Oftentimes it's not about the stimulus. It's not about the input. It's not about the stress. It's our perception of the stress. Why is it that somebody who's profoundly ticklish, very easily startled and experiences a significant amount of fear and anxiety around being tickled can touch their own foot and not tickle themselves? Well, clearly it can't be an issue with the stimulus. It's an issue with the way that we experience the stimulus. So that doesn't, and this is really important from a psychological perspective and a grace perspective and a permission perspective. It has nothing to do with whether or not we think that the issue or the experience is appropriate and everything to do with whether or not our bodies, our brains, our minds, our hearts, and our souls think it's significant. Mm. So if I touch the bottom of somebody's foot, and it creates a profound startle response, and it's really uncomfortable for them. I can't minimize their experience and say it's irrelevant as soon as they touch their foot and they don't tickle themselves. Right. Perception is a big part of it. You know, we, we have been going, and the, I think the funny thing is, Bob, you know, I mean, if you look at this, how long has the movie industry existed? And people have been going to the movies and watching something on a screen and either laughing because it's funny or crying because it's in, it's connecting, or jumping out of their seats because it's scary, and none of it is real. All of it is on a screen that is not present. We've spent our entire lives engaging in music and film that is not real, it's perceived. But the reason that we laugh because it connects with a part of us that goes, that's humor, I know what that means. The reason my wife won't go to a scary movie is because she is hyperticulation. and she doesn't believe that it's not real, and she doesn't, logically she knows that it isn't, but experientially, she doesn't. You know, so she doesn't know the difference many times between what's real and what isn't, or your body doesn't. Yeah, you don't know the difference. You know, so I think when we're having these things and you're watching somebody on the screen, 
what's happened in these experiences when I talk about like resiliency and perception is up until this point, most people have, I don't think, come into contact intimately or realistically with their own mortality. Mm-hmm. They haven't come into contact with something that feels life-threatening or could potentially be the train that's about to close in on them or the, or the person pulling the gun on them. They don't know how to manage, and it's understandable. It's not that it's appropriate or inappropriate. If we haven't hit threshold like this before and we haven't exceeded our capacity like this before, I mean, it's one of those things where we can give ourselves a lot of grace and permission to go, when is the last time that I was inundated with this much information about how globally we're experiencing this level of fear and mm-hmm. a pandemic is being used in terms of the word? Uh, it's, it's just one thing I'll mention quickly for you, and uh, forgive me for waxing poetic here. Um, in order to create a limbic attachment, in order to create a connection that says, I'll remember exactly what that was like for the rest of my life. It not only require, it not only happens with negative experiences, it can also happen with really, really life-giving ones. Where were you when you got married if it was, ha- if it was a happy time? Had your first child if it was a happy time? First kiss if it was a good time? Uh, you know, if you watch the movie Ratatouille by Pixar, uh, when Ego takes a bite of Ratatouille at the end of the movie, that single bite of food overrides his entire personality and his entire identity of being who he is because it transports him back to being a kid standing in the doorway because he remembers what it feels like to be loved just based off of the smell, right? So you can have these things that are really powerful that we remember connected to life-giving experiences, Mm -hmm. but it requires three specific things. And this is why psychologically it's been changed so quickly is it requires intensity. How strong is it? Frequency, how often does it happen? And duration, how long does it last? So if you look at 9-11, for instance, how many times did 9-11 happen? Once. But how often was it displayed on the news and for how long was that conversation? So you ended up having a community-wide attachment. Now you've got something that's happening globally where 100% of people on the planet, arguably, are going through the same fear at a very intense rate, very often, and for an extended period of time. So it's made our entire collective consciousness and our individual consciousness go, this is really, really important to remember exactly what this feels like and do everything we can to avoid it in the future. And that's causing everything to be rewired and and to be changed. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I've thought a lot and talked a little bit about that. I had never called it a limbic attachment, but I'd love to get your opinion on uh, the fact that I am old enough to remember the Challenger and 9-11 um, and believe it or not, as a very, very young child, I do remember uh, where I was when the, when the men worked, walked on the moon the first time. Um, now, having said all that, my understanding in my um, studies, experiences, is um, what you call limbic attachments is also uh, being fully present in that moment. Yeah. Um, if I were to ask Someone to ask me, hey, Bob, where were you um, two years ago on April the 15th at two o'clock in the afternoon? I couldn't tell you. Uh, I couldn't even remember four days ago what I was doing at this time. Now, having said that, it's because um, maybe it wasn't traumatic, good or bad. But also, there's a good chance I wasn't fully present mind, body, soul, um, focusing in for and being intentional about that. And I'm wondering if things like meditation 
uh, prayer, um, practicing breathing. Those are ways that we do make positive limbic attachments being present. Um, what are your thoughts on that? No, I think, I think your, your intuition and your description is, is wonderful. It's fantastic. And it's definitely true. The reason a limbic attachment is created is because your brain in that moment for a very rare occasion is able to go, nothing else matters than what's happening right now. Mm. I'm not a second in the past. I'm not a second in the future. And the interesting thing is our brain only actually processes information in present tense. It requires us to step in and reflect or forecast. So that's something that we do thanks to the way that our brain has so much capacity. And sometimes we can get stuck in the past or the future, but most of the time it's really, really hard for us to be fully present because our perspective is always on something else. You know, is it about us? Is it about something close to us? Is it about the big picture? I refer to that as an internal, local, and a global perspective. So when you're doing something where you make an attachment, your internal, your local, and your global experience all coincide. Everything becomes present. Mm -hmm. I know where I am in space in relationship to the whole. I know where the whole is in relationship to my local environment as it relates to me. So all of a sudden, everything becomes this singularity, so to speak, this, this synergy of experiences. And your brain doesn't know the difference between perception and reality. So if something becomes so real and so present and so tangible, and it has to have, just for what it's worth, the part of the limbic system, lives a part, uh, it lives above your, the top of your brainstem called your midbrain. It's basically where the Hulk lives. It's your survival-based system, your sympathetic system, your fight or flight system. Uh, it's also the part of your system that helps you to go, I feel very pleasurable experiences or very painful experiences. It's why when we have intimate experiences, you know, depending on what your experience and your background is, it can be painful or pleasurable, but it can be very vulnerable. So when you have a limbic attachment and you're super present, in order for it to hardwire from short-term memory to long-term memory immediately, it has to have a strong emotional connection. The reason being, it doesn't have to have a complex emotion. I'm talking even primitive emotion. Every single one of those encounters that you looked at, even when you were a young kid with walking on the moon, everybody in that environment was modeling and mirroring significant emotion. Yes. Right? That's so, what I remember. What I remember is my parents and the friends that they were with at the time. And I remember the conversations that were going on. That's yeah. what I remember. Because it's, it's, so, it's so strong. Why is it that we can automatically go back to exactly how we felt when we saw the news for 9-11 for the first time? Why is it exactly like my dad's been gone for 22 years, almost 23 years. He passed away when I was a freshman in high school. Um, I can talk about that night where my dad passed away and be intimately in that moment in real time. Because when you talk about limbic attachments, I want you to think about it more like a record and records are coming back so people know LPs better. But you can take a record that hasn't been played in 40 years. It was made and then boxed. But as soon as you put it back on the record and you hit play and you put the needle on top of it, it immediately plays exactly the same way. That's the way the brain works. Mm. If it creates a record of something and you shelve it for two decades and you come back and you get into an environment that allows you to replay it really, really clearly, it will be like it's the first time all over again because it's actually made a real legitimate record so that anytime that it comes up, if you can connect to it really intentionally, which is why centering prayer, meditation, contemplative practices, breathing techniques, 
all of those have a common thread, which is they're designed to a degree to help you with embodiment, to help you get back into your body, to be connected to something that's real and present and tangible. And when you do that, it can unlock so many things. This is why you see so many healthy trauma-informed therapists and trauma-informed practices that are also body-based um, help you to get back to being present. So yeah, you saying presence, I think is a great, is a great um, synonym for exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, and uh, not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but an example of what you're talking about, these limbic connections and these record grooves um, and how much they control us. Um, you know, I have a, my son got an Oculus VR for, for Christmas and <laughs> there's a game on there called, I forget the name of it, but you walk out on a plank uh, on the top of a, uh, of a <laughs> skyscraper. Yeah, you'll trigger a panic attack. I can't, I can't, I still haven't done it. No. Because your brain doesn't know that it's not real. I know. Your brain does. I put this thing on my head. I'm, I'm on the floor and up in the room, and I know I'm there, and I'm a logical person, but I literally cannot walk four feet out on a plank in VR because it is your brain says it triggers all these chemicals and fears, and I'm going to fall to my death. And I know it's not real intellectually, but it totally, it's like I'm a puppet. I can't do anything else. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, that I, I love that example because this is, I've worked with a lot of different VR technology with um, patients that I work with because you can actually help retrain somebody who has a phantom limb syndrome or somebody who has poor balance or somebody had a stroke. Like there's profoundly helpful things to help the brain, to trick the brain into thinking that you can do something that's not real. But in those sort of situations, I think more than anything, it gives us a ton of grace to go the reason that is happening is because you are hardwired for survival, right? Your brain is trying to help you. So if we look at somebody across the table who is having a panic attack because their 401k just disappeared, or they're having a panic attack because they're not sure if they can survive contracting the virus or running out of income or losing a family member. These are really legitimately life-threatening, even if they're perceived, and oftentimes real experiences around what does it look like for me to survive this? And if we just, as an on-ramp to the conversations to give each other some space and some permission and some grace, responded initially by saying, it's understandable, it might not be sustainable. Like it is understandable that my body is trying to help me survive, thank you. I appreciate that. Because if I did walk out onto a plank in real life, this response would be great. Right. However, maybe the thing to do is not put the VR set on and maybe not engage in that environment to push myself outside of my comfort zone, no matter how much I logically understand it, because the cost benefit isn't worth it. It's a great example just to tie in. This is what every, uh, no, I shouldn't say everybody, this is what so many people are experiencing with the news at the moment. The news is their Oculus VR experience with whether or not the world is going to collapse. And they right. don't know it's not real. So right. one of the things that we can do is if it's triggering that much of a survival-based response, stress, panic, anxiety, depression, it might be an idea to turn the TV off for a bit and not check the social media stream. Yeah. And for, God, for the love of God, maybe, maybe stay off of Twitter for an hour, <laughs> take a deep breath, go for a walk, because your brain doesn't know that that is not significantly dangerous any more so as we scoff at people and go, it's just the news. Don't take it seriously. 
your brain doesn't know it's the news. It's going to respond the exact same way as it did when you stepped out onto the plane. Yeah, that's good. Well, that's a great segue uh, into hardwiring and personality types. You wrote a book called the Brain Based Brain Based Enneagram. Is that what it's called? It is, and the subtitle, which always uh, ruffles a few feathers, is "You Are Not a Number." Because I'm trying yeah. to understand yeah, that. Yeah. And one of the things that I've appreciated about talking with you, reading your book, listening to you from other sources is um, you talk about the fluidity of the Enneagram to some degree. And, you know, a lot of Enneagram teachers and and information, uh, which is helpful, is you identify what number you tend to lean toward. And it usually can identify and help you to understand a lot of things about yourself, as you said, have grace for yourself and others as you learn about other people's, but um, it becomes uh, static. You know, I'm an Enneagram seven, so therefore I do seven like things and I understand the world through the understanding of the personality of that number. Whereas the way that you're a little bit different is you say every human being is a combination of all nine numbers and we have stronger energy toward one or two, which kind of is our number we identify with, but that isn't you that you can. And I guess maybe the question is that I have for you and love to hear you talk about today is, do you believe that people can uh, actually um, integrate other numbers and other energies on a regular basis? Maybe not primary, but can they grow and change? Are you not stuck with one way of being wired? Um, So that's my question. Yeah, the short answer is yes. You can definitely integrate them. You can definitely lean into them. And, you know, one of my favorite teachers, Russ Hudson, says uh, nobody wants to be a third of a person. Mm. Um, so if you live in one of the intelligence centers, head, heart, or gut, uh, nobody wants to be a third of a person. Uh, so I think everybody who's learning more about kind of the comprehensive integrated version of the Enneagram knows that we have access to all of the numbers and we can pull from all of the numbers. I'm trying to change a little bit of the semantic and the nuance to say it's not on for one and off for eight. It's not on for two and off for seven. It's on for all nine collectively at different volumes and different mm-hmm. speeds and different efficiencies. Uh, it's kind of like if you took a census right now of the entire planet. And, you know, funny enough, the, the idea of all of this, Bob, is starting to make a lot more sense to people when they understand how quickly a global experience can impact everybody on the planet. Because I've been saying for years, this is a global experience that is simultaneously active. Just because I go to sleep here doesn't mean somebody's not awake in Australia. <laughs> like right. The global activ- activity is still simultaneous. Um, but yeah, you can definitely turn on and integrate other numbers. I think one of the metaphors coming back to the, the travel and the map is I'm in Atlanta and you're in Nashville. Right? So you're Tennessee, I'm, I'm Georgia completely different geographical regions, but we're interacting in this conversation right now. Uh, Even now with the stay at home and the quarantine and the other things that are happening, even with the mandates, if you had to, you could get to Georgia. If I had to, I could get to Nashville. It's not an impossibility. It may be impractical, but it's not impossible. But when the whole thing settles and we're able to travel again, up until two months ago, the idea of travel was a very, very common thing. Now everybody's been in this quarantine, stay-at-home kind of idea. I think a lot of the Enneagram language in its origin space started in reverse. It started with the idea, you live in a particular part of the world. 
that is what your job is and that's your nationality, that's your tribe. You don't travel outside of that. It's a very, very fixed space. Every once in a while you might, but not consistently. And I think the healthier thing, and, and for us as a people using the pandemic as an example, is at some point we're gonna have to navigate and change the way that we kind of encounter travel and we encounter other people groups. But I don't think the world as a whole is gonna survive by saying we can't. It's going to say, how do we change the way that we engage and we integrate? And again, to reinforce the idea of a primary number, if we look at our survival strategies as a human being, I'll use myself as an example. I'm most efficient in two. I don't say I am a two. I say I'm most efficient in a two. I'm least efficient in an eight and a five. I actually, even though most people hear what I do, they default to thinking I'm a five. Uh, you must be an intellectual. You must be, uh, you must be somebody who loves data and sits in front of textbooks. No, I don't. It fatigues me. I get tired from it. The reason I went into neuroscience was because of necessity, not because of desire. That's a very different thing. It's very unnatural for me, and it requires a ton of intentionality. To be in a two space is autopilot. It's completely unintentional. However, I'm still going to wake up every morning in a two space and go to sleep every morning in a two space consistently. But it doesn't mean during the day that I'm not constantly doing these sort of things. And one last point to just kind of land the metaphor. I think one of the things that we're starting to see here, and it's a big conversation, and everybody's got opinions on accuracy and appropriateness and inappropriateness and all of these other things. But I think it's safe to say that right now, most people are pretty sure that they could have a conversation about how other countries have handled the, pand the pandemic. And most people could at least give you a bullet point of how did that country handle it? Or how do you think we're handling it? And I think this experience is giving us a chance to go, it's okay for us to ask what best practices are so that we can still integrate it at home. And maybe it's an idea to travel to that country and meet with them in person and see what does it look like to live in a four space? It's not my normal space. What does it look like to live in a six? I don't know. It's not my normal space. But can I garner best practices from them and integrate that so that I can have a healthy environment at home? For sure. But it's moving out of this idea of being in a fixed space to going, it's all in the brain-based Enneagram evidence is that through neuroscience. So none of this explanation has been through brain function. But the good thing is the brain-based Enneagram and the brain function shows how we can actually practically prove that and then make some practical applications as a result of that. Mm. That's good. So um, as you talk to people, teach, speak, I know you've, you've, you've been, you know, spoken with other Enneagram um, experts and, and others. How, how is that approach being received? Is it, is it, is that how many of the higher level experts see it? Or um, are you, are you trying to teach something that's a little different, unique? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, the example that I would give, again, using some clinical language, is it's kind of like when they invented advanced diagnostics, like an MRI or a CT scan. A lot of people who had the x-ray were like, the x-ray is all we need. And then when they started seeing the CT and the MRI, they were like, wow, that's, that's a new way of looking at the body. Mm. And a functional MRI came out, and they're like, wow, we're looking at the brain function in real time. So I think what I'm trying to convey to everybody is everything that we're using right now is really helpful and very, very, very accurate but it's kind of like trying to explain to somebody what happens in a movie by handing them a photograph it's going to be really good at giving you that snapshot but i would rather explain the movie to you by having a dynamic experience of what that entire thing looks like yes so moving into the holistic model and, and moving away from a personality type into a whole identity profile 
and saying, what's the global experience? What's the entire story? And how does that interact? You can keep coming back to your favorite scene. You can keep coming back to that single snapshot and it's going to be very reliable. An MRI is very reliable. But if you want something that's going to be even more reliable, I think a functional MRI is better. And that's what I'm trying to do with a brain-based Enneagram. Fortunately, all of the, the folks that I've met with um, that are, I mean, they're consummate teachers and they've been doing this longer than I've been alive. I mean, you got to realize I am, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a young pup in a, in a big world here trying to offer some, some new insights. Um, but the reality is all of the teachers who are really expert in this, which I don't consider myself an expert yet, I haven't done it for long enough. The people who are experts and masters, um, they already intuit that all of this is there but there hasn't been a way to substantiate it or validate it or bring evidence empirically to it. That's why one of the big things in the book was I try to show a new scoring methodology that actually allows you to statistically see how all of the numbers show up on your landscape. And then seeing, and this is a really important piece why I think most of the people who have been really opposed to tests in the past, a lot of, a lot of Enneagram teachers are opposed to testing. And a lot of Enneagram teachers are dependent on testing. Uh, in a clinical world, a diagnostic is a resource to inform you. It is not a diagnosis. If you make a diagnosis off of one lab value, you are probably going to be wrong most of the time. But if you combine good diagnostics with a good exam and a good history and good inform informative inform or, or answers from the person that you're meeting with, all of those things in conjunction paint a much clearer picture. So I still think we need motivational interviewing in the Enneagram. I still think we need a good test as a diagnostic, not a diagnosis. We need a good case history. We need good, honest, transparent answers. And then you need a really, really good clinician or coach or trainer or somebody who is certified in this to go, how do I walk you through that in partnership? Because all of that is welcome. But if we pick one of those things, it may get us close, but it may not be comprehensive. That's really good. So what are some real practical ways that people can use the Enneagram? Like, like give, give us a, a couple of tips. So for instance, if, if you've done numerous tests, you've read numerous books, you know kind of what number you lean toward, what then do I do with that? Sure. Um, coming back to kind of the start of the conversation around a limbic attachment and survival strategies, from a neuropsychological perspective and also a practical perspective, 100% of the time, our brain is trying to assess if we're going to survive. Everything is anchored in a survival-based response. Whether we want it to be or not, that's, that's the on-ramp. So one of the most practical things that you can do with the Enneagram is understand your relationship with each of the spaces on the Enneagram as to whether or not they feel safe or unsafe and why. This is why it's also, if you can't answer these questions on your own, Really good to do it with a therapist who understands the Enneagram or a coach or somebody else that does this. Because, for example, using myself, if I know what my high numbers are, I know what I feel needs to be in my environment in order to feel safe and pursue mm -hmm. some degree of life-giving encounter. Like, I need to nurture things. I want to appreciate the environment. I want to build value. I want to steward things well. I need in six energy for things to be more stable and secure. I'm not a fan of things being unstable. And in a three energy, for instance, I'm really, really interested in achieving an effective outcome. I want to produce something. I want to create something. If I don't get the chance to nurture and take care of people, if I don't get the chance to hit a goal, if I don't get the chance to make things more stable, I'm going to start to feel uncomfortable. So one of the practical things that you can do is look at all of the words and go, do I, 
do I need that in my life? Like, do I prioritize that? And a good way of knowing, do you prioritize that, is if somebody eliminated it, how long could you last without it? Mm. And if you don't last for an extended period of time without it, and I'm talking like a day, if it's a high number, you're not going a day without it. You need it. You're addicted right. to it. So if you can't go a day without it, it's probably something that you prioritize and you value and you're seeking, you're motivated by. If it's something that you're like, I don't really get the big, I don't get it. I, I'm not sure why people want to be in that space. It's probably less important and less valuable. And it's either because you haven't had it modeled for that to be rewarding. So why would you invest your energy in that? Or it's legitimately unsafe. Like you have some triggers tied to it and you're like, that doesn't feel approachable for me. So if you look at and an easy way of looking at it practically is as much as people do or don't know about the Enneagram, most people know what number puts them off. And if they say, I don't really gravitate or do well with that number, there's a high probability you either have negative experiences with that kind of person, or you don't know what the gift, the reward or the value is in that type of experience. So your brain is like, why would I bother? So to make it super practical, I think if you take the nine types of the Enneagram, even if you take the normal names, of them, I use value attributions rather than titles. But if you take the nine numbers and you were to just to prioritize them, to say what's the most important, what's the least important, how would I personally rank them? And then be able to say, why do I need this in my life? And why am I avoiding this? And is that something that's still true? And if people are like, well, I wouldn't change that often. Case in point, how much has changed in the last two months? How have our priorities changed? So just trying to orient to what's important and what's not, but then really critically being able to ask why. And if you don't feel like you can answer that, getting somebody to walk through that with you can help you to start to get an idea of kind of how you naturally orient to all nine numbers. Because whether you want to or not, your brain is subconsciously having a conversation with all of those numbers at the same time to either pursue them or avoid them. And the really, really important reason that I'm saying this is if somebody interferes with your top numbers, it will trigger you. Mm. If somebody introduces your lowest numbers, it will trigger you. So if the only thing that we do is use the Enneagram to understand what our triggers are, because a lot of us are triggered right now, a lot of us are tired, and a lot of us are overwhelmed. Uh, if we understand our triggers in all of those numbers, it can be a really, really powerful tool for finding a degree of safety and calm and being safe. That's great. That's wonderful. Um, I guess that's a great pathway into my final question, which I think um, is the practical side is what are a couple of things that are tips you can offer people right now as a um, functional neurologist, as somebody who counsels people and helps people work through issues? I mean, this is a time where I'm sure you're doing a lot of zoom calls with your patients and other things, but uh, what, what are tips that you can offer people right now that are going through, um, you know, anxiety and depression and lost their jobs or what's going to happen? How long is I'm cooped up? I, I feel like I'm a, a rat in a cage. What, what, what are some tips you can give people? Yeah, it's, um, I'll, I'll bookend this with, with something that'll help people get a, a more unpacked version of this so that they don't try to digest it in the next six to eight minutes. Um, but I made a video course two years ago called the, it's called the neurotheology of self-care. It's the idea of how our brain actually works around self-care and every topic that is, that is firing around all over the place right now, there are 21 videos with six and a half hours of content and worksheets and visuals specifically to answer this. And it's free at the moment. It was 
uh, was for sale. But with everything that's going on with the pandemic, especially the way that I'm wired, I just said, I think this is going to be really, really helpful. <laughs> so let's just make it available. So if anybody goes to my Instagram, which is doctor.drome, D-O-C-T-O-R.drome, in the bio is the link to get the course for free. Um, that will be really, really helpful. The reason I say that is to give you something practical, I'm going to point to one video, which is called Hopeful Grateful Learning. Um, and in the Hopeful Grateful Learning video, it's designed to be able to say, look, there's a, there is a lot of stuff happening of which I have no control over, uh, of which I have no predictability. I mean, we could literally try to boil the ocean with the amount of options that exist of what we can't or can't or try to do right now. But one grounded practical thing is to go through the exercise of hopeful, grateful learning, which is you say, I'm hopeful for fill in the blank because fill in the blank. And that makes me feel. Mm. And the reason I say this is one of the things that's really, really important in the current crisis that we're in is we as individuals, as communities, as, as local groups, as, as spouses, as parents, as friends, have to be able to keep remembering what's real and what's possible. And if we're trying to absorb all of this and digest it, we can't metabolize the volume of things that are coming into our environment right now. It's too much. We're, we're being inundated, right? It's a sensory overload. So to take a pause for a second and go, what can I, what one thing can I digest at the moment? What one thing can I communicate? One of the really helpful things in that a lot of times is to process, to be able to communicate what you're dealing with, even if you don't know exactly how you would frame it or the language. So the Hopeful Grateful Learning exercise is designed to do that in a tangible way. Um, if you'd be up for it, can I do it with you? Sure. You okay with that? Yeah. So here's the two, two rules, okay? You can be pragmatic or optimistic, but you can't be pessimistic. Okay. Because pessimism is going to cause your brain to think that you're in a more life-threatening situation. And the reality is, if you're actually in a life-threatening situation, this is not the exercise, okay? <laughs> Triage is the exercise. Go to a hospital, get out of the environment. But if you're not in a life-threatening situation, this can help your brain de-escalate the threat level really quickly. So it's more than welcome for you to be transparent about what is difficult and be pragmatic. Mm. And an easy way to know, well, how am I being pragmatic? If you can phrase anything with, well, that's understandable. It's understandable that you would feel that way. Mm. You're giving permission to say, this is hard. So you can communicate what's hard and you can also be hopeful and optimistic, but just avoid pessimism. Cool. Mm. So here's the, uh, the question, Bob, what, what are you hopeful for right now? I'm hopeful that this whole thing will end and we will all go back to uh, a sense of normalcy. I'm hopeful that we will learn from it and we will be, um, that I will be a better person because of it. Thank you. And why is that the case? Because this has caused me to think so much about uh, what is important, what is not important. Um, and it's caused me to focus and be present uh, it's forced me to be that way to, and I think it's forced a lot of people around me to be that way. And so the conversations and the thoughts uh, that I'm having tend to, to say, I don't know, we will go back to a sense of normalcy, but I don't think it will be the same. And how does that make you feel? 
it makes me feel hopeful and good, but it doesn't take away the anxiety and the unknowing uh, from day to day. So it's simultaneous feelings. Excellent. Thank you. So to reflect on that with you and why this is so important is I can give you a hundred different things for each number, but realistically to use your whole brain and a whole Enneagram, the hopeful, grateful learning hits all of the triads. Okay. Mm -hmm. It makes it practical. It allows you to deductively think through what it is. And then it allows you to emotionally connect with what you're feeling. So it's both thinking, feeling, and practical application. It's your head, your heart, and your gut all together. But what you're doing as you're saying that is you're giving yourself permission to be transparent about what's difficult at the same time as the tone and the sense of going, I don't currently feel like it's going to bury me. It is very heavy. But at the same time, as people have this conversation and they start to really connect with the gravitas of it, the heaviness of it, that's one of those things where you can go, man, if it is actually that heavy, I've had conversations with people in the last week, really unfortunately where some people attempted suicide and weren't successful and some did and they, they were successful. This kind of exercise, being able to bring to the surface for somebody, I'm recognizing how hard this is, but I feel like I can make it. Cool. That's great. That's encouraging. I recognize how heavy this is and I'm not sure if I can. That's really important to be able to acknowledge. That's a very different space for very different reasons. Okay. Um, one more. What are you grateful for? Mm. Just a second. When you say how I feel, the caveat is try to use a word other than hopeful or grateful because it'll activate the part of your brain that requires you to turn on higher functions and that helps to calm down the part of your brain that deals with a stress response. So grateful, try and give a synonym. But what are you grateful for? Um, I'm grateful for um, those people around me that love me and care for me and that are here not only in physical presence, but those people who check on me on a regular basis, who care enough to say, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Um, I'm grateful for those people. Thank you. Why are you grateful for that? Uh, because I have a tendency to be, uh, <laughs> I think as Ian told me the other day, self-preferential, which means I can get inside of my head pretty quickly. I can be focused on um, feeling trapped. Um, it's good to hear from other human beings when and say, hey, you're not alone. Um, it's going to be okay. Um, the, you know, you're not going to be trapped forever, and we're going to get out of this because I have a tendency to go to those feelings in and out throughout the day. Sure. And how does that make you feel? It makes me feel uh, loved. It makes me feel um, heard and seen um, and not alone. Thank you. So with that, and we'll have one piece left that's talking about learning, but with that, the reason that this is really important is one of the challenges that exists in the Enneagram world, in the spiritual world, in the clinical world, in any aspect where there is content expertise, is on the consumer end or the patient end or the parishioner end or the participant end, we're hoping that somebody can give us a make art button or a pill or a resolution uh, and a protocol. Just, give, just tell me what to do. Just, give, just fix it. 
The challenge is the reason that that is so hard is you have to hit a bullseye to make that work. It has to be absolutely right on. You have to hit the nail on the head properly and repeatedly. 99.9% of the time, that's not going to happen because it's too complex and it's too comprehensive. So if I try to answer a question for you as a particular type, I have a high probability of landing in the arena, but I may not hit the actual resolution that you need. So if I can give you an exercise that allows your whole brain to be active, to engage your head, your heart, and your gut, to engage your thinking, your feeling, and your reactions, to make it practical for you to know how you're doing emotionally and mentally, it doesn't mean that it immediately resolves it. But the biggest thing and the beautiful thing with the way that the brain works and the way that we're made is the more that we turn on the executive teams in our brain, the more they show up and they automatically do what we need anyways. Because as you just went through that process, when you say the words like loved, or people check in on me, or I feel connected, you're actually physiologically releasing the neurochemistry that helps you to heal. Mm-hmm. It is the reason that antidepressants and anti-anxiety and anti-psychotropic, psycho, you know, all these other pieces exist. The reason that those drugs work is because you naturally produce what those drugs put into your system already. They're naturally a part of your automatic neurochemistry. So I say that is when you do this practice and you for a moment get that hit where you have that emotional response where you're like, I just said out loud, I do feel loved. Okay, I do feel loved. Is that real? Do I do I associate? Yeah, I actually do associate with that. And now all of a sudden your brain goes, is that my reality? Is that true of me? And when you say that, it actually releases the hormones and the neurochemistry to mm. support that. And you're physiologically healing your body. Mm. It's like an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety. Okay, it's the same neurochemistry. So when you when you do these processes, don't just think of them as verbal kind of cues. You're actually being present more and more to what's happening. And to be present, you have to impact your body. And if you impact your body, it's going to make a real difference to how you actually feel as a human being in that moment. Okay. So you've got hopeful, you've got grateful. Uh, now tell me, and you can't say hopeful or grateful. <laughs> tell me, what are you, uh, Bob, what are you learning in this space? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm learning that life is fragile. It's unpredictable, but it's also beautifully, um, beautifully connected, uh, to everybody and everything. Uh, we're all going through the same thing and it changed on a dime in a second. Um, that gives me um, an awareness that I am intimately, extricably connected to everybody and everything deeper than I think I ever could imagine. And that makes me feel connected uh, and part of something much bigger than myself. Beautiful. And you closed it out with exactly the next step, which is how does that make you feel? Mm. And the reason that this exercise is so so important is we started the conversation by saying, how am I processing the reality of my world? When I see something and it's a disconnect, when everything's changed, when perception of reality have shifted, I don't know if I'm safe or unsafe. The world is upside down and I'm trying to figure out how to reintegrate. This exercise helps you in the words of my wife in a space where I was suicidal and I've attempted and survived the suicide attempt. So thankfully I've been in this space and walked through it. 
she gave me a statement that said, sometimes you have to anchor to a bigger truth. Mm. And what this exercise does is for the moment, for this present moment, lets you end your self-experience based on the words that you communicate. What is a bigger truth that you can hold on to for the moment? It gives you your own life raft and it gives you your own reorientation. Mm. And it allows you to integrate a little bit and heal in all of these processes. If you can stay pragmatic and optimistic. Because the thing that I love that you demonstrated so well is you didn't minimize the heaviness of it. You didn't separate yourself from the complexity of what you're experiencing that is hard. Because if it's hard, it can be helpful. If it's harmful, it's not. Mm. And if we're gonna build resiliency, we have to learn the difference between discomfort and trauma. And this is really important. The difference between discomfort and trauma is the length of time for recovery. Mm. If we go through something and it's going to take us less than a week to get over, it is not a trauma. If we go through something that's going to take us longer than a week to get over, it is a trauma. And in this space, if we don't understand that what is happening collectively is traumatic, our approach to how we triage and manage that is going to be wholly insufficient mm. and inappropriate. However, once we come out of this and we have the PTSD of the experience and we hear the squealing of the tires that we think is going to be the rear end situation all over again, how do we so quickly go, this reminds me of COVID. It reminds me of the sensation that I had when I was triggered, but this is uncomfortable. It's not traumatic. I will get over it in an hour or day or week. So in this space, you're giving the chance to experience that heaviness and you're recognizing the legitimacy of it, but you're not just trying to sugarcoat it in this kind of um, unhelpful optimism. It's great to be optimistic. It is not helpful to just lean into that and not engage in a way that also still allows you to really participate in what healing yeah. looks like. So I, I love the, the answers and the way that you model that. Thank you for letting me put you on the spot. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, we're running out of time. Um, this has been beautiful. It's been great. Uh, how can people uh, connect with you, Dr. Level? Yeah, I appreciate it. I think the two fastest ways are um, my Instagram is kind of the primary space. Um, I'm, I'm a, a bit opposed to Twitter. <laughs> it's a little too incendiary for me. Um, but Dr. Jerome is my Twitter account, D-O-C-T-O-R dot Jerome that has there. And uh, my website is drjerome.com, which is dr. J-E-R-O-M-E. And all of the things that I do that we've discussed are landed in both of those two spaces. That's awesome. That's beautiful. We'll put that in the show notes. And um, I thank you for taking some time out. And um, I know that my listeners are going to love love this content. And hopefully they can look you up and, and maybe, who knows, maybe engage with you. But thank you so much. Uh, you have another book coming out? Uh, well, you know, the funny thing is, is everybody gives me a hard time that I've got too much content and, and, and not enough time. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're working on uh, two other books at the moment that are going to be an expanded version of the brain-based Enneagram and then another one called the Enneagram of God. Uh, so we've got some, some fun stuff coming out. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Dr. Jerome. And uh, you guys stay safe, you and your family, and be well. You too, Bob. Thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. All right. Talk to you soon. 